2, The Power of More from Brockmeier and Zalo. Innovation Thinking. Today's episode, we are talking about the relevance of cryptocurrencies, and we are delighted to be able to welcome Vinay Gupta to the podcast today. Before we get our guest into the conversation, I would like to introduce the co-host of the podcast, Dieter Brockmeier, the innovation expert at the Diplomatic World Institute. Hello, Dieter. How are you today? Hi, Christian, and uh, really great to have a podcast an episode again. I think it's our 48th. And uh, I'm really delighted to have Vinay Gupta uh, as, a, as a guest. Uh, I had a recently an uh, interview with him, and we really talked about the relevance of crypto, and I'm really happy that we continue this conversation uh, today. Yeah, and now our special guest, Vinay Gupta. He's the founder and CEO of Materium. He is a leading figure in the blockchain space, and he coordinated the release of the blockchain platform Ethereum in July 2015. Wiene, thank you very much for joining us today. How are you? Uh, I'm well. Um, and uh, yeah, it's good to be here. It's nice to be able to talk about the kind of deeper issues in the blockchain space, not just the kind of, you know, superficial price action, but to actually get down to some of the issues of like real significance. You were an early crypto pioneer back in the times of eGold in the late 1990s and one of the fathers of Ethereum today. We are still in a young industry. How do you differentiate from Bitcoin? So the Bitcoin vision is just very much about fixing money. Uh, you know, get the banks out of the business of creating money, get the governments out of the business of creating money, have a fixed monetary policy, which everybody understands and can make future predictions based on, uh, and just generally automate money supply. And that vision is, you know, perfectly encapsulated in the Bitcoin code. You know, that's exactly what the Bitcoin system does. And if people want that, they can buy into that monetary policy by buying Bitcoin. So, you know, I think the best way of thinking of Bitcoin is that it is a monetary policy as a service with an associated payment rail. Um, and that is a very powerful model, right? You're not used to thinking of monetary policy being a thing that can be provided as a service, but it's monetary policy as a service. Um, so that is the first thing. I think that is, you know, quite important. But then the rest of the blockchain space has a very, very different uh, set of objectives. Um, you know, the Ethereum space is very much rooted in the idea of not fixing monetary policy, but of providing a new kind of cloud infrastructure, a sort of uh, what we refer to as the world computer, a single computing system that is capable of touching all the world's resources um, and that everybody can kind of refer to as a central point. Uh, the closest example we have to a system that works that way today is called DNS, the domain name system. And if you think of, you know, things like the .coms or, you know, .co.uk or whatever it happens to be, this universal naming scheme for domains turns out to make it massively easier to access information. So the sort of idea of this uh, world computer model is to have a universal namespace, not just for information on websites, but for financial products, for bank accounts, for individuals, so that you can basically organize all of, <clears throat> all of the world's assets and resources inside the scope of a single computer. Um, it's a very different model from Bitcoin. You know, it's built on top of the Bitcoin uh, technology to a large degree. 
you know, certainly if Bitcoin doesn't exist, Ethereum never would have existed, but it's a very, very different effect uh, in practice. Well, and you have the smart contracts included, and this, uh, of course, provides a lot of extra opportunity to, uh, to, to deal with, um, with financial situations. Absolutely. I mean, some of this is just, the, you know, the actual things like wire transfers. Wire transfers still take usually two to three days to make an international payment, right? Do you think there's any possibility that the bank is actually taking three days to make that payment internally? No, I mean, it's just impossible. So what's happening is the bank is making the payment immediately, and then they're deliberately waiting three days, sitting on your money, using it to lend out to people, taking the interest payment, and then eventually giving you the money. Right? It's pure profiteering, and the banks are doing that pure profiteering because the customers are accustomed to wire transfers taking three days, and then the banks move on to an instantaneous payment system, and the banks get their money instantaneously, and then they make you wait three days, and they keep the interest they charge uh, to other people for using your money in that time period. It's just a ripoff. And the only reason the banks are able to get away with this is that there is basically no competitive pressure against the banks. So one of the most useful things that the cryptocurrency space provides is a meaningful competitive pressure against the banks to make the bank get their game together and start offering people decent services. That's a very good point, yeah. I mean, the wire transfer is not the only example of the banks being deliberately slow to adopt new technology. You know, you could think of almost any area of banking services and they still provide you the service as the customer in a very slow, very inefficient, very broken way even though you know for sure the bank internal systems are actually efficient and effective. Maybe we should change the topic of the entire podcast from what the relevance of cryptocurrency to what is the relevance of banks. Well, you know, there is um, an old saying that in banking there are only two jobs. Job number one is do not lose the money that you have. And job number two is estimate credit risk. So I would suggest that not losing the money is largely at this point a digital problem. You know, there are very, very good digital safeguards for money, and most of the money is represented digitally. You know, it's not like you can have some quirk, fiddle the books, and then walk out with 50 billion. Uh, and then on the other side of this, estimating credit risk is largely going to the social media companies. We can't avoid banks. I mean, uh, when it comes uh, to really uh, make cryptos widely accepted and Uh, relevant uh, also in, in payments, I think you, you need the, the central banks because if they when they start rolling out uh, cryptocurrencies, I think that's a signal in the, for the market that uh, cryptos has become relevant. Um, I mean, PayPal now lets you buy Bitcoin. You know, Monzo. I don't I don't remember whether Monzo does it or Revolut does it. But by the time you can do crypto payments using PayPal. It doesn't really matter what the central banks have to say at all. You know, if you want access to crypto, you get a PayPal account. PayPal is in every way, shape, and form equal to the big, uh, like, uh, clearing banks. Um, it's an enormous financial institution, and it's universally accessible over most of the globe. At that point, it's kind of done, you know? That's right. I mean, look at Africa. They are highly advanced, and you can make your money payment via a mobile phone without an official bank account. It's called the M-Pesa system. Absolutely. And I mean, those systems, you know, gateways exist between those systems and the crypto world. So you can go M-Pesa to Bitcoin, then make your international payment in Bitcoin. Uh, and then at the other end, convert back into dollars or whatever it is you're looking for. Okay, so banks are out. What is the relevance of cryptocurrencies? Well, I mean, we say banks are out, but banks are out in the same way that books are out. 
you know, like it's the legacy system. It will always continue to exist. A lot of people prefer paper to uh, an e-reader. And all that happens is you get the book system and the e-reader ecosystem. They both continue to exist. They both flourish. They provide very, very similar services to people. And you just pick whatever it is that you're comfortable with on that day. Okay, but we have major issues in the cryptocurrency. Let's talk about climate mm. and being carbon neutral. What kind of solutions do you have in mind while protegeing the uh, cryptocurrencies? So, I mean, Bitcoin is an environmental disaster. You know, much as they talk about Bitcoin is all really powered by renewable energy and, you know, it's all going to be geothermal one day or whatever it is they talk about. You know, the truth is right now, Bitcoin has a gigantic carbon footprint. Um, and I mean, I've seen estimates suggesting that, you know, two Bitcoin transactions is equal to most people's climate footprint for an entire year. You know, I don't know if that number is really? accurate or not, but yeah, oh, the, yeah, I mean, the carbon footprint for Bitcoin is outrageously enormous. Um, so, you know, that is just, you know, sort of heading into crime against the future territory. You know, it, it's, it's very clear that that really shouldn't be happening. And, you know, the Bitcoiners approach to this is not like, hey, you know, we're going to redo our protocol so it doesn't have this huge carbon footprint. It's we're going to move our mining systems over to onto renewable energy. So we're still going to burn the same amount of energy, but now we're renewable. I'm, I'm not of the opinion that that is exactly how this problem ought to be approached. Um, but, you know, making Bitcoiners change is, you know, it's, it's not generally speaking a pragmatic approach to anything. Trying to get Bitcoiners to do something differently is generally speaking impossible. So I don't think we're going to be able to get Bitcoin fixed by persuading Bitcoiners to change their mind. That's just not really a thing they do. Um, if it's going to get fixed, it's going to get fixed by systems which are dramatically more useful than Bitcoin and also carbon neutral coming along and taking over and gradually forcing the Bitcoin people to change or what will happen is that everybody will leave for these new platforms. Uh, and I think that process is actually well underway. You know, the Ethereum process has you know, enormously enlarged the scope of global interest in the blockchain. Um, but there's no denying that there is a tension between the Ethereum community and the Bitcoin community because newcomers to crypto could either buy Bitcoin or they could buy Ether, and a lot of them are choosing to buy Ether. Consequently, there's a sense of competition between those currencies. And then there are a whole group of kind of third-generation blockchain projects coming along, which are dramatically faster than Ethereum and dramatically faster than Bitcoin. And those systems are generally speaking carbon neutral. Absolutely. When you say the whatever cryptocurrency is faster than the Bitcoin, what is the benchmark of being faster? The number of transactions you can process each second. So Bitcoin will do about 10 transactions a second. So, you know, you could have one set of people that were engaged in something like an auction, and that would still basically swamp the entire transactional volume of the Bitcoin ecosystem. Um, it's, it's not a very fast system. Uh, you compare that to a technology like Avalanche, Avalanche is doing about uh, 4,500 transactions a second. Um, and, you know, Visa is typically running at about 30,000 transactions a second. So by the time you have a technology getting to about, you know, 20% of the speed of Visa, you can easily imagine that that technology could be scaled up by another factor of 10, and you would have a system that was faster than Visa and at that point, you begin to talk about, you know, serious global payments infrastructure. 
Another issue, I think, uh, definitely is regulation. I mean, uh, 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 China just banned uh, to trade cryptos. I think they do is to protect the, the stock market, but that's another issue. Regulation will be, but will become a very, or already is a very hot issue. And the old banks and the central banks are keen not to lose control. Uh, what will be the impact of that? Um, so here, you know, this is the real crux of the entire global question around crypto. Um, and, you know, what, what do we do? Right? Are we going to have a situation in which the central banks crush the new technology, or is the new technology going to crush the central banks? Which one of these sounds more likely to you? Yes. Uh, who will? Uh, well, but, but what does that mean to the to the entire system? Well, that's a great question, right? I mean, is it possible that we can imagine governments running the world on a currency that they don't control? <clears throat> Unlikely. But that was how everything ran right up until 1970 on the gold standard. Right? When the gold standard was in place, all of the global currencies were simply proxies for gold. And if you had direct access to physical gold, you had direct access to the ability to make money, to, to literally print currency. So, you know, governments had to run on the gold standard for centuries, millennia, and somehow they made it work. You know, the idea that governments control the currency and the currency issue. That's a radically, radically weird thing that happened in the 20th century. It's got nothing to do with the existing practice. So we're in an anomaly, which is the anomaly where governments control money supply. Governments did not used to control money supply. You know, the, the, the economic dominance that comes from governments printing money is completely against historical norms, where if the government didn't have the gold, the government couldn't spend. Will they accomplish? Um, my guess about what will happen with this is, again, not that it will be the governments wipe out cryptocurrency or the cryptocurrency wipes out the central banks. I don't think it will be this kind of either-or thinking. I think what you're going to get is, just like we see with books and e-books, I think what you're going to get is a mixed economy. You know, Some small countries have central bank digital currencies. Some trade systems run entirely on a cryptocurrency like, you know, if the entire coffee industry decides that it wants to run on some kind of coffee coin, you know, because it just is so much easier than handling 25 different currencies of transactions and having like 600 different bank accounts, we're just going to run the entire thing on a crypto coin and it's going to smooth out all of our trade. It makes the payments to small farmers instantaneous. It allows for tracking of the money. It helps us track our environmental footprint. It helps us check for modern slavery. You know, the whole thing is super transparent. You could tell whether you're being ripped off. You know, we're just going to move the whole thing across onto a coffee coin. You can imagine them negotiating, you know, Starbucks just going out there and negotiating with governments to say, in this domain, we want you to treat this currency as a currency. And we're going to pay our taxes, and this is how you know you're going to pay the taxes. So it, it doesn't have to be a single global regime. The superpowers continue to do central banking. Small countries are a mix of their own currencies, central bank digital currencies, Bitcoin, Ether, or other kind of stable coins, uh, pegs to US dollar. You, know, you could have a bunch of different approaches for small countries. Uh, and then potentially specific industry verticals begin to use their own payment infrastructure for you know specific coins for a given industry because it allows that industry to have universal standards for payments, for transparency, for compliance. So what would be the... Um... 
the alternatives or how could uh, central banks accomplish a regulatory approach? Uh, is there a way that they can make um, uh, uh, make it more uh, more controllable for them? Here, we've got to look at what the central banks do versus what the central banks say they do. Um, you may have noticed that we just had an enormous drop of uh, hacked financial documents from the world's tax havens. Uh, this drop is called, uh, uh, what is it called? The Pandora Papers, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very, very clear that most of the rich people in most of the Western nations are breaking the law and laundering money to avoid paying taxes on it. It's a gigantic scheme. It's been running for decades. The central banks, if they're interested in stopping money laundering and tax evasion and all the rest of this kind of stuff, really ought to be going after that infrastructure and shutting all of these networks down. And in practice, they tolerate them because that's their job. So one way uh, you mentioned um, when we talked about it uh, would be to, um, to force any trading into the onto exchanges that you can't trade outside exchanges and also exchanges can trade with other exchanges and then the, you would be in a in a legal uh, transparent and controllable environment sure but what i want to suggest is that the central banks are fundamentally uninterested in having a legal controllable transparent environment right what they're doing is they're allowing the rich to avoid paying taxes on a massive scale um, and they've been allowing that for decades. So, you know, the other approach here is that all that crypto is doing is it's giving the poor the same kind of privileges as the rich already enjoy relative to the state's ability to enforce taxation law. And what will happen to privacy of the people? Well, I mean, in this situation, we have essentially no privacy. Again, there has been an unbelievably enormous increase of the state's surveillance of ordinary individuals over the past 30 or 40 years. Everything digital, everything digital winds up in the pockets of the state. So, you know, we sort of, we have the illusion that nothing has changed. You know, the world still kind of works the way it always works. Everything is sort of where it used to be. But in fact, you know, we've slipped invisibly from a relatively, you know, in a world where privacy was the norm for people as they went about their daily lives. And you could only really wind up under state surveillance if somebody cared enough to pay somebody to spy on you versus the situation where the state controls all of the electronic infrastructure and the state does all the spying. Um, you know, it's, it's spied on by default rather than private by default. So this is really, you know, a difficult topic to discuss. Because it's hard to say, you know, we've slipped into a much more authoritarian world, but we have slipped into a much more authoritarian world. You know, the kind of privacy that people are trying to get to with this whole kind of crypto world is merely a return to the kind of privacy that they would have had, say, 50 or 100 years ago. It's not a new, unprecedented kind of privacy. You know, it used to be that banks really did give their customers quite a lot of privacy because it wasn't like the state was able to go around and surveil every single bank account, look at who was paying who, and build social network graphs of how the money works and then figure out where they're going to intercede. And, you know, I wouldn't object to this kind of stuff quite so much if they were also applying those laws to the rich. <laughs> Interesting. 
Actually, we are coming to the point where we should ask the last question, and that is actually the outlook for the future. Wiener, drawing this picture you've drawn right now, what do you think is the expectation for the next three to five years in this business? So I think that what we're going to do is we're going to break down the wall between the world of technology and the world of finance. Um, the last really big innovation in finance was really the credit card. You know, that was the last time there was a fundamental change. And the credit card is now something like 50 years old. So the idea that we should be able to email people money, and that should be a secure payment, and it should be instantaneous, and it should be as cheap as email is, you know, is there any reason at this point in history why Visa should be able to charge a 1% or 2% fee on transactions? I understand that 50 years ago, maybe it cost 1% or 2% to do a transaction across the world. But now I guarantee that it doesn't cost Visa 2% to make that transaction happen. So, you know, as with the banks who choose to sit three days on your wire transfer, you know, until we see some competition for payments, the banks are going to continue to pretend that the world has not changed in the past 50 years. And then they will take as profit all the advancements which technological change has enabled in that period. And I don't think that that is a thing that should be allowed to happen. If the banking regulators were remotely on top of their business, the banks would not be able to get this kind of uh, take, take these kind of margins. So, you know, what we have, from my perspective, is a pervasive failure of banking regulation, resulting in the entire international system being rat-holed by rich people hiding money from the tax authorities, and banks taking money from ordinary citizens for pay expensive payment rails that, for the banks, have become cheap. Um, where we're going, I think, is into an age where there's no real differentiation between the world of finance and the world of technology. And at one end of it, it will be relatively conservative systems like central bank digital currencies. And at the other end of it, it will be crazy cryptocurrency privacy schemes like Monero. And there'll be 50 variations in between. Different nations will legislate in different ways. Different nations will partner with technology companies in different ways. And I think that you're going to see an enormous kind of uh, Cambrian explosion of different technologies and different legal and regulatory arrangements. And what will come out of that in probably 10 or 15 years is a new sort of established set of global systems. Interesting. Dieter? Yeah. Um, what I can say is uh, that uh, crypto will... Uh, have a huge impact on uh, on our finance system and uh, the way we are living and dealing. And uh, when I I have a bank that instantly when I do a transaction, uh, instantly uh, uh, registers this and and puts it through. So there is no delay. So there is already some competition also within traditional banks. But of course, it's not enough. And I'm uh, really looking forward. Uh, to what will happen and what uh, which scenario uh, will become true, it will be different. That's the only thing I can tell for sure now. It, it will certainly be very different. And I mean, that SEPA payment system, you know, the European Union thing that allows for instant payments, you know, that was basically pushed down the neck of the banks by the EU, you know, banking regulators actually doing their job for a change. You know, we know you've to do this, you're going to do this, you're, we're going to pass a law that says you have to do this. It was really pushed on the banks by the EU. And quite rightly, you know, if you're going to have regulated banking, let the regulators do a good job, please. 
Right, absolutely. That was Vinay Gupta, a seasoned consultant on government level for many states about today's burning issues like climate change and cryptocurrency solutions. Thank you for this really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it. Great to be here. Thank you. Two, the power of more. From Brockmeier and Zalo. Innovation thinking.